of things that needed to be, you know, what I felt were kind of loose ends, uh, that if, if you can't add doctrine to the Word of God, basically what I was hoping to do in that first session was to deal with uh, the Word itself and, and why it's trustworthy, but if it's trustworthy, then what? And so as I was listening to, uh, to Jack in, in his first session, uh, it was kind of cool. I'm thinking as I'm listening to it, we didn't, we didn't talk with one another, but uh, his, uh, the, the focus of the, the two passages he's dealing with in prayer deals with the, the end of days or the end, how you are in a place prepared uh, as far as your, your prayer as you await the Lord. Mine is, is one of how do we deal with the word of God and once we've established that it's worthy of trust, then what? And so uh, we get into doctrine in the, in the second session here. And I had mentioned a, a passage to you from Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, in verses 11 and 12, and I'll just kind of go over it really quick. You can write that down. But basically, he says that he gives to the, to the church, he gives teachers, even though we can come to the word of God ourselves. One of the things that he says that, that he gives those people for the equipping of the ministry, the equipping of the saints, and for edification, for the building up. Now, if the Bible is not the basis for that, and if there aren't things upon which we can agree, then how is anyone edified and how is anyone really educated from the, from the teacher to the people who are just sitting there? And so that's the importance of doctrine. Interestingly enough, I run into people all the time that tell us that doctrine's not an important thing. So why that is, I'll never fully understand uh, why they come to that conclusion. But I want to show you something, and let me just, hopefully... I know I do this at church all the time. I always ask people for a show of hands and nobody ever participates, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway. When you think about doctrinal matters and, and when you think that you should know these things, do you get people that say, well, since doctrine divides, we shouldn't be worried about doctrine? How many of you people have heard that argument? Interesting. I've heard it plenty of times too, and I'm thinking, well, then why do you even bother? If you don't know what it is that you believe, because really what you're, you're talking about when you say doctrine, and I'll, I'll examine that in a moment with you, but when you talk about doctrine, then ultimately you're saying these are the things that we believe. And if, you're, if you don't even know what it is that you believe, then, I mean, why are we here? Why do we get together if we don't know what it is that we ultimately believe? In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 5, I want to go there real quick and See if you, uh, if you are the type who, uh, like myself, when I read passages out of the Bible, so many times I will just say, why? A statement is made, something is written, and then you ask why. And it's, it's a great tool for, in fact, finding ways to understand what the Scripture teaches. But uh, it also is part of that whole inductive way of looking into the Scripture. You're going to ask the who, what, where, when, why, how of, uh, of you know, who the people are being written to, and it gives you the, the way of starting to extract what you need to out of the text. There is something amazing that, that is said here in Jeremiah, and I hope that it kind of makes you gasp if you've never read it before. But look at chapter 5, verse 30. Here is, here is this incredible statement. An astonishing and a horrible thing has been committed in the land. Now, even in my, I didn't even look at it first, but even in my Bible, I, I have it written in red with a question mark. Well, what is it? What's this horrible, what's this astonishing thing that's happened in the land? Well, he answers the question by saying the prophets, they prophesy falsely. 
the priests rule by their own power. Now, that's, the, that's his assessment of the prophets and the priests. But if they do so falsely, then that assumes that there is a correct way that things should be done, or else you can't even make the accusation unless there's something accurate. Now, a lot of times people would say, as far as doctrine is concerned, that you guys, that they'll point to people, a lot of times, Calvary Chapel, well, you guys are always talking about what you're against. How come we never hear what you're for? And we basically say, how come you're not listening? Because if you are for something, are you by definition not against something else? Is that not just the automatic conclusion? I am for the, let's say, the inerrancy of Scripture. So therefore, I am against the people who teach that there is error in the Scripture. Now, I think it's an important thing that we stake out where it is that we, where we stand and how we believe on things. But here's the one that's the gasp when I read this. So he says, the prophets, they prophesy falsely. The priests, they rule by their own power. And my people love to have it so. Gasp. That means that they are complicit in this. Tell me what I want to hear. They love to have it so. Because if they're going to be prophesying falsely and, and teaching incorrect things, they're doing that for the consumption of the people that want to hear what they want to hear. So they'll find someone to tell them those things. Sounds very Pauline, doesn't it? They're going to heap to themselves teachers having itchy ears. Tell me what I want to hear. I'm sick of those people telling me what I don't want to hear. What the scripture has to teach. So find somebody to tell me what I want to hear. Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. What is in your word today? As we consider that the, the written word is there and you've given teachers, you've given us ourselves that we can come to your word, that we could be built up, that we could be edified, that we could be instructed according to your word. We pray, Father, that as we see a very similar thing happening in our land, where those people who identify themselves as yours will sit under people who will prophesy falsely, will tell them things that are patently untrue, but they sit under those because they love to have it so. We become entertained, Lord. We pray, God, that you would give us a desire to not be entertained, but rather to stand and abide in your word. We pray, God, that you would glorify yourself through the teaching of your word in this place today. By your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So in uh, this Jeremiah passage, if you, if you don't have that one underlined, go look at that because it's such a kind of an indictment of, uh, of where we are in, in the history, I believe, of the church. And I want to take you to a couple of other places. I won't do as many scripture references so I don't have to get chastised by Jack for doing it. But uh, if you'll go to 2 Timothy, <laughs> I'll pay for that. There was something that I learned early on that uh, if you're going to be in a place like this, you don't say anything and leave it open for the guy that has the microphone last. I know this, and see, look, at he's licking his chops. I, I don't know, what was I thinking? Here's this wonderful thing that Paul says to Timothy, and it's one of those that, that we should all be keeping in mind, and it is something that uh, to a, a person who pastors or a person who teaches the Word, and I don't care if you're, just, if you're involved with children's ministry, what some people think, oh, they're just kids. Oh, man. Oh, no, 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 no. You start them early and you give them a love and an affection for the word of God. So that translates later. We don't want to have to deal with that in junior high and high school. We know that by the time that they hit junior high, they have already formulated their worldview. Have you guys seen the statistics on that? 
So that's the idea that you make sure that they understand from the earliest of early ages. And so the charge that Paul gives to Timothy here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're familiar with it, it tells us. It, it, verse 14 kind of uh, starts the whole thing by saying, remind them of these things, and that these things is the general context that he has shared right before. He says a number of things, and again, this is preparing Timothy for Paul's eventual moving on. So he says, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. So we can get caught debating all kinds of things that really genuinely don't matter. But then there is a totally different part of this in verse 15. But he says, now you be diligent or some uh, King James would see would say study to show yourself or to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Well, why not? Why not be ashamed? Why, what would cause me to be ashamed if you're not doing the rest of this rightly dividing the word of truth? It means that you handle it with accuracy, rightly divide. So that means that the scripture has been given to us to pass along to someone else. Timothy wasn't always Timothy in the sense that we know him. Timothy was a man raised in the, in the right kind of atmosphere, and he, he understood the things that he understood. But then Paul laid hold of him in his second missionary journey, and he went and saw all the things that Paul did. He heard the messages that Paul taught. He understood the doctrine. It's why Paul is later in this book able to say, you've studied the things that I've taught. You've watched my manner of life. You've seen the things that I've done. And he's saying it in a way of saying, I'm about out of here. By chapter 4, he says, I'm poured out. Now, that's his way of saying, you carry on. Now, you've heard me mention him a couple of times. My, my pastor, I was with him for 25 years. And I got a chance to watch everything that he did. And here's the one thing. This, I know this will shock you. Pastors aren't perfect. I, I know that's hard for you to believe, right? But it's true. And so some of the best lessons I ever learned was being able to say, man, if I'm ever that guy, I will not do that. I'm sure that there are things that Paul did that he would probably have rather done over. Even some of those things, just stories you read about him in the book of Acts, you probably think, man, I wouldn't have done that. I think after his first missionary journey, when they took him out thinking he was dead, does everybody remember what he did? Got up and went right back into the city. I'm thinking, where's the road lead in the opposite direction? That's where I'm going to go. How many people knowing what we know about him, if he'd have said, hey, I'm going to go on a missionary journey. You guys want to come along? No, that's okay, man. I got grass to watch grow and some concrete that I'm going to watch dry. I, I see what happens when people travel with you. I see what happens to you. But I also know how he had such a commitment to God's word. That's why he couldn't be stopped. I, I read something that somebody had, uh, had taken the time to kind of catalog of the places that we know that he went to. And looking at how much it, it covered, it was 12,000 miles. And 5,000 of it was over land. Wrap your mind around that. Who would do that? That's like across this country and a good portion of the way back. But this is a man who is driven. He knows why God has laid hold of him. Again, you can read about that in chapter 20 of the book of Acts. That's where he says, I don't count my life dear to myself. Well, with a person like that, you can do great things. And God did. So much of what Paul wrote was dedicated to doctrine. So if people say that doctrine's not a big deal, well, apparently it was to, to uh, Paul. And if we're not supposed to worry about doctrine, we should just rip out everything that he wrote. Because it was correcting churches many times, who had fallen into some kind of error. And so as we see here with Timothy, you can read the writings to Timothy and he is constantly repeating that same thing. 
doctrine. Now, that brings us to the word doctrine. There are a couple of words that you'll see translated as doctrine, sometimes teaching, and, and they're basically the same kind of word. One is just the action, one is more the content. Uh, didache is the, is the Greek word for uh, the, the act, if you will, of teaching. There's 30 times that it's used in the New Testament. The other one is didaskalia. That's what it is that you teach. So one is the action of teaching. The other one is the content. Now, here's why I think it's important. For those people that would say, doctrine's not that big of a deal. If you look up the word didaskalia, you can use your blue letter Bible if you'd like, and you can look that up. It's used 21 times in the New Testament. 19 of those times, Paul uses it. The other two are attributed to Jesus, where he talks about you teach the doctrines of men. He uses it once in Matthew, once in Mark. Paul uses it twice in Romans, once in Philippians, once in Colossians. The other 15 usages are found either in Titus or in Timothy. Let that sink in for a moment. That which you teach. The lion's share of the usages of that in the Greek is used to a pastor, from a pastor to another pastor. And it was one of these two things. Know what you believe, teach what you believe. So you've watched my manner of life, my doctrine, then you know it, and then you teach it as well. So doctrine is such an important thing. Now, I grew up, and my whole Christian life has been uh, in Calvary Chapel. So there were a, a, uh, a, a number of doctrinal things that were taught, and I didn't realize that they were, um, that they were different for different denominations. I came out of a Catholic background. I was one of those that, like Jack had asked, and so I come from that background, and so I found my way into a Calvary Chapel at Cyprus, the church that, that I pastor, and I thought, oh, well, this is what Protestants do. So they just study through the Bible. Well, I didn't even know what that meant at the time, but as time goes by, you realize how cool that is, because you learn so much so quickly. If you're going to spend the time and immerse yourself in it, you are going to learn an awful lot of important things, and it happens very quickly. It wasn't until a, a number of years later that I thought, or I learned, that this is not necessarily what, what Protestants do. The idea of teaching through the Scripture is getting less and less prominent in the church, sad to say, and there's reasons why it, it should be, but it's not. So as I watched this over the years and started to examine the doctrines that I was taught, I wanted to be able to say, do I agree with these? Can I prove them scripturally? Are they sound? And I think every Christian should do exactly that. I believe that as we, if you're, if you're here and you're part of one of the Calvary chapels around here, we were given this book that was referred to as the distinctives. Interestingly enough, before it was written, they were always the doctrines that we talked about. So when we approached the scriptures, that was the approach that we took. And I have always agreed with them because I believe that they're biblically supported. And I have taken a look at the other views. I just disagree. So I wouldn't have, first of all, I wouldn't have affiliated as a Calvary Chapel pastor unless I saw what it was that they believed doctrinally. And if I didn't agree with it, I wouldn't want to associate with it. So I did. I associated with it. I heard what those distinctives were. They've all that I've ever known. And I teach them as I have been taught. And I agree with them based upon the word. Why I bring all of this up is because some of the most basic bedrock doctrines within our, our movement are ones that are being majorly discussed right now, and it's become real contentious. How many of you pay attention to all the bombs being thrown around in Christianity? Okay, did you guys have too many double-doubles? I mean, 
Well, you're laughing, so you are at least awake. The ones of you who laughed, I know that you're awake. Let me just go over a, a few of them that, that, uh, that uh, again, they've, they've been they're a mainstay of what it is that we believe. Now, if you don't talk about them this way, you know, they, they have these nice fancy words for them. We're premillennial. Well, premillennial, that makes it pretty easy. It's before the millennium. And so Jesus comes, sets up his earthly kingdom, and that's what triggers the thousand-year reign. Now, interestingly enough, everybody's minds probably think right to Revelation, right? Well, the thousand years, the millennial kingdom is not as much mentioned even in Revelation. It has a very short amount of detail about it. You know where you go to get details about the millennium? Old Testament. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, well, the minor prophets for that matter. So much of the day of the Lord stuff and then what comes after that. You get a lot of the descriptions there, but Isaiah... Definitely towards the latter chapters. I mean, lion and lamb and all that kind of stuff, that's there. That's where you get your, your details. And so again, why I say it's important that we understand. See, John, as he's writing the Revelation, doesn't need to give a lot of that detail because it should be known to those people who have a love for the Word of God. The detail that we get in the book of Revelation is because it's not necessarily covered in detail elsewhere. So it's important that we understand these kind of things. Premillennial, we believe that Jesus returns to the earth, and this time when he comes, he's not leaving. And so he sets up a, a thousand-year millennial kingdom, a, th a little thousand years. Why is that such a big deal? Because much of the church believes that the book of Revelation is, is meant to be written or believe more in symbols or that it is already historically it's already taken place i've heard some people say there's no sense in even reading it because it's already taken place well okay if that's your view the problem is that you will not understand a whole lot about so much else that is not only in the scripture but what is taking shape in our world today so if I'm thinking that there's a thousand years that is to come, then I should know about what leads up to that thousand years. So we believe that there is a tribulation that is coming upon the earth, like Revelation talks about. So we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. The church is removed before the tribulation begins. There are a number of places and there are a number of reasons why we believe that. But for time's sake, just a couple of the big glaring things if you look at the book of Revelation, by the time that the seals begin to be opened and the judgments and all that begins, it is to deal with those that are unrepentant upon the earth. And then it is to lead other ones to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And then God does amazing things with the nation of Israel. All of that is not necessary as far as the church is concerned. That's already been settled. We aren't needing to be saved. We're already saved. So that's why what we read in 1 Thessalonians 4, where we get the what people would call the rapture of the church, the being caught away, or the, in the Greek, the harpazo. That's at verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul says, we who are alive will be caught up with them, the dead that died in Christ, and then we will ever be with the Lord. But if, you, if you're going to take a look at it in its context, chapter 5 goes transitionally right into the day of the Lord stuff, where he's going to deal with the people that are on the earth. And then he ends up showing by contrast, there are those upon the earth, but you have not been appointed to wrath, is what he says in chapter 5, verse 9. So we believe for a mountain of reasons that the church is not here and present. And I could give a whole bunch of other ones, but I'm just going big picture with all of you and why doctrine's important. We should be conversant in all this stuff because there is so much opposition to it. Now, the opposition is, again... God is not a God of judgment. He's a God of love, 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 love. 
Well, okay, great, but at that point you're playing a one-stringed instrument. Yes, God is a God of love, and he demonstrated it. Paul tells us that in Romans 5.8. You want a demonstration of love? While we were sinners, Jesus died for the ungodly, right? So we believe that. But in that very same sentence, or that same verse where it says that he loves, it also tells us that he sacrificed. That means he took upon himself what was due to me. So we need to make sure that we balance all of that. Doctrine is such an important part. And so for those who will not fall upon his gift of eternal life and repent before him, what is left for those that would reject such a great salvation? We see it. It's in the tribulation. We believe in the, uh, in the continuing work of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that is, again, a big, a big debate that's going on in the church. And, and I heard uh, it was Damien Kyle who said it at a, at a pastor's conference. Interestingly enough, when it comes to the work of the Spirit, why would, if God has spoken in times past and been so careful to do these great things of communicating to man and doing things by his Spirit, why would he knock out a whole bunch of things only to leave a few gifts left? It doesn't stand up to scrutiny when you look at it in the Scripture. It doesn't stand up to the, the, there's really only one verse that causes the big debate. And that is, since we have the Bible, we don't need them anymore. They refer to that as the perfect, as Paul talks about it in, in 1 Corinthians 13. Or is that perfect when Jesus comes back and then we are known as we are known? Or he, we know him as he's known. There's, that goes along with uh, 1 John chapter 3, that same thing. The people who have that hope in him, seeing Jesus face to face, it causes a purifying effect. But until he comes back, and let me ask you this. Given the, the state of things in the world in which we live, does it seem odd that God would say, I know I've done a lot of things a particular way in the past, but you guys don't need all the benefits of the Spirit. That's bizarre to me. So we were taught that everything about the Spirit is still in operation today, and I believe, again, there is reasons to believe that. Now, these are bedrock, these are core distinctive doctrines of Calvary Chapel, though they are not unique to us. They are unique to the scripture, no question, but they are distinctive to our movement. Now, I know that some people say that we shouldn't worry about leaning on distinctives necessarily. I would, I would disagree. There is the sovereignty of God and the sovereignty of man. And this is the one that everybody's wanting to debate about now. So does God predestine some to hell and does he predestine the other ones to heaven? And does he really ordain everything, even human suffering and sin and all the rest of it. And everybody's debating that stuff. And I thank, I thank God for Pastor Chuck, who gave us that whole simple thing, is that God in his sovereignty has given man choice. And so we are to abide in him, and that settles the issue. John chapter 15. It's not terribly complicated. So for those people that would say, well, God never allows man a free will, interestingly enough, they only point to a handful of verses in the New Testament but you've got to forget about all the ones in the Old Testament. Let me give you an example. Ezekiel 33, 11 is a great one where God says, here, Ezekiel, I want you to say this to them. I want you to have them, you know, I'm, I'm actually doing okay on time. Let's go there. Let's read it because I want you to, if you don't have it underlined, this is a great one for you to have knowledge of. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. So this, of course, is that you're a watchman. Make sure that you're warning of approaching danger. There's an accountability to the watchman here. So then we read in verse 11, God tells him, you say to him, you say to them rather, as I live, says the Lord God, 
I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. And then notice what he says here. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Now, if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he gives them the option, but has no intention of, of following through on an offer because he decides, then does that not just make him cruel and toying with mankind? And I can show you dozens of such passages where it's very clear that God says, here is me entreating you to do a particular thing. Now, if he's the one who picks and chooses all of those things, then even making the offer with no intention of letting them pick, even though it sounds like you give them a choice, it sounds like the things that we do to our kids, doesn't it? Just to mess with them. But God's not like, oh, you guys don't do that with your kids. Yes, you do. Sure you do. And the younger they are, the funnier it is. You just don't want to admit it. God's not that way. He wouldn't say, turn, why should you die if he's the one who ultimately decides? He never would have made the offer in the first place. Or that just makes him cruel and he's toying with people. And there are so many other places that very clearly, I think, show the exact same thing. But these are the nature, these are things about the nature of God. These are theological and doctrinal matters. This tells us about the nature of God, that he comes to man, makes an offer to them, that they may accept that offer. He gives them the will to, to uh, accept that offer. I don't believe that he decrees anything like we've heard from some people. But this is a huge debate even in the church. Even around uh, some of the pastors that I know or some of the... Uh, the here's really what's weird. Uh, the people that are the biggest target of this are our college and career age kids. They're the ones that are being uh, most you know, offered to come and check out our thing. There's, there's one that's not far from, from us, and that's one of the things they say, well, this is what we believe. We have what they call a reformed view, but we don't push that. And I'm thinking, well, what about when you get to the places in the, in the Bible where it talks about those things? Well, we don't promote that. Well, then you're not teaching it. Even if you believe it, you've got to teach those things, don't you? So I'm not mentioning them by name. It doesn't really matter. We're in Pasadena. You don't even know where they are anyway. But the interesting thing about it, I, there was a young lady who was going there for a while. And I had a conversation with her. And one of the things that I appreciated so much about what I learned in my years was how much time was dedicated to the teaching of the word at the church. We were always, at all times, going through the Old Testament and at all times going through the New. Still to this day, it's the same thing. Our Sunday nights are Old Testament Wednesday nights are new, and we're always going through a book on Sunday morning. So it's immersive, and that's great, because that's, man, that's how you grow. Well, when I talked with this young lady, she said, I love this church because they're really, you know, the people are really cool, but they're so evangelical, and they're so gospel-centered. Great. So what are, they, what are they teaching on Sunday mornings? Well, we're going through the gospel of Mark. Oh, Wonderful. So you'll learn about the life of Jesus. You'll learn about some miraculous things. You'll hear some parables and, you know, not to discount it. It's wonderful. But where does the depth come from? Where do you go into the, you know, studying through the scriptures? Because, you know, you obviously want to get to that place where the doctrinal things are, are taught to us. Even look at the way that, that Luke handled this. When he gave us the gospel of Luke, when he writes to Theophilus in Acts, it was basically saying, hey, remember all those things that I told you that Jesus did when he was here? He died, he resurrected, he sent his Holy Spirit, and here's what happened when the church was empowered by the Spirit. And so along comes Paul and starts to set in order all of the doctrinal things. This was my understanding. This was what I was taught by my pastor. And yeah, it built me up and it edified me. 
I grew in the faith because somebody was faithful to teach the word of God. So I asked this young lady, well, what do they do in the midweek? They have a midweek study? And she said, yeah, they have a midweek study. Oh, okay, so that's when you get into the depth. Yeah, that's when they get into the depth. Well, what book are you going through? Well, we review what was taught on Sunday morning. Oh, so Mark followed by Mark, which is great. And you're just talking about what you learned on Sunday morning. But when does the instruction in the scripture, when does that actually take place? And it's left for them to do in the quietness of their own time. Now, you can do that with the Holy Spirit, as I had mentioned in our first section, or first session rather. But the idea that a church would come together and grow in their understanding and their knowledge of God is super important. I mentioned a little bit of eschatology. How many of you have heard that eschatology doesn't matter? You shouldn't worry about the end times things. Have you had that one? There are very prominent pastors that say exactly that. None of them I've heard within Calvary Chapel, but very recognizable people I've heard say, it's none of our business. Have you ever considered the books of First and Second Thessalonians? What are they about? Rapture of the church, second coming of the Lord. They are eschatological books. Well, that's because the people there at Thessalonica, they were deeply theological and very, very mature believers, right? How old were they when Paul left them? He spent three Sabbaths there. So give or take a, a few days before and after, he spent about a month with them. And look at the fact that he says in, in chapter 5 of the first book of Thessalonians, he basically says, now, you know, according to, about the day of the Lord, you don't need that I need to tell you about that. You know it comes a thief in the night. You're, you're, you're really aware of this stuff. Let me ask you, how many of you after a month were really aware of the day of the Lord or the rapture of the church or eschatological matters? You've got to remember, he went there preaching the gospel. They got saved, instructed in the basics of Christianity. And, oh, yeah, let's talk about end times things. Wow. Talk about making up ground in a hurry. How many of us were proficient in the rapture in the day of the Lord? How far into our Christian walk were we? Now, if he can pull that off in a church that was a month old, then don't tell me that we can't handle that stuff. That's either not understanding the God that we serve the importance of the topic, or it is just laziness, if I could be so bold. So if you're angry, throw stuff at me. I think I could kind of fit behind here if I had to duck. It's big enough. Well, we were taught about those things. We were taught about eschatology. We were taught about the, the importance of the nation of Israel. Because we have that view of the book of Revelation that, well, chapter 1 and Jesus and his qualifications to be who he is, Chapters 2 and 3, where he gives us the breakdown of each one of the churches. And interestingly enough, I'll just ask the question. Most people relate our day here in this earth to which one of the churches? Laodicea. Many times you'll hear people say that. Well, that's a church that's in apostasy. You can't prove that. Not through the text. Because Jesus says nothing about doctrine or theology. What's their problem? Apathy. No big deal. Everything's good. We're lukewarm. Jesus said, I'd rather you be one of either extremes, but man, room temperature, water, I'm, I'm nauseated. I'm throwing you out of my mouth. You want to know where the, the doctrinal and theological problems were? Think Pergamos. Think Thyatira. Places like that. Interestingly enough, each one of the churches are represented in just about every church. 
I would say that there are a number of churches that are really living on yesterday's reputation because of the shingle that's hanging outside the church. That was the problem as far as uh, Sardis was concerned. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Or Ephesus. Mechanically, you've got it all together on the outward, but there's one problem with you. You have voluntarily left your first love. So we should be looking at those passages like there and say, man, this is a report card on my heart because I'm part of the church, even though I don't go to the, Well, see, I used to go to Laodicea. Now, I, I don't go there anymore. I go to Philadelphia. About you guys? Anybody? <laughs> now, see, there was another one that was really doing well. It was Smyrna, but it was under persecution, so I don't want to go to that church. Just take me to Philadelphia now that I've left the other one. Well, we should be at all times saying, look, there are components of those churches, and some of the things he says, they do commendably. But we should look at them all as one and say, whatever their failures were, let's make sure they're not ours. And whatever their successes, let's duplicate those things. That's why he gives the report card in the first place. And I want us to also remember going along with the rapture. I believe, because this is one of the big debates, some are teaching that the church goes through some portion of the tribulation. So let me give you, if I can, what I consider just kind of a very interesting little text from the seven churches. It's the one to Philadelphia, and it's found in chapter 3, verse 10 where Jesus says, because you have overcome, or if you will endure, overcome, then I am going to keep you from the hour of tribulation or trouble that's coming upon the earth. That's the problem. Now, I'm going to keep you out means that I'm not going to do anything other than remove you before that time takes place, studying the language. But here's the question. For those people that would say, well, it's all figurative and it's all this and it's all that, why in the world, if it was only about an event that happened at Jerusalem, because that's what they do. They say, well, the book of Revelation is really dealing with what the Romans did to Jerusalem in 70 AD when they sacked it. Then here's my question. Why warn a church in modern-day Western Turkey about something that's going to take place in Jerusalem? What do they care? It doesn't matter to them. You get the problem or you get the, the solution to the problem? For those things, there's just there, we have to be willing to hear what's being taught and say, does it stand up to, first of all, common sense, and then biblical scrutiny? Everything must be proven. We need to have that kind of diligence, and that's what, going back to our first session, if we believe that the Word of God is perfect, true, pure, accurate, authoritative, then apply it to everything that we believe as believers. Now, when we look at the doctrines that, that just some of them that I had pointed out, and you can look at distinctives or for whatever, whatever you know, uh, doctrinal view you want to take a look at or whatever is being debated, just know if it's being discussed in the church, it's first and foremost, it was discussed in the Bible. And interestingly enough, whoever it is that this person wants to quote, well, so-and-so says and so-and-so says that, just remember this. If those guys never existed, most of the time, most of the books that I've seen written on opinion... If those guys didn't exist, I probably wouldn't come to their conclusions by going through the scriptures. You get what I mean? So people see what they want to see and they build an entire belief system upon a couple of verses here or there and then everybody starts to read their stuff and it's kind of a circular firing squad that nobody ever hits anybody else. I don't know how that quite works out. But why I'm, sometimes people ask, well, who are you reading right now? What do you mean who am I reading? Well, whose book are you reading? Well, I don't read books like that. I don't have any time. And besides, I get easily distracted. Have you noticed? I guess why I ask a lot of questions, because I want to try to keep you guys on your toes. 
whoever's written a book on this, that, or the other thing, you know, I, I do, I enjoy reading commentaries. But as I was taught by my pastor, you better make sure you understand it first. You don't go to a commentary to get their opinion on it. As he used to say, it's kind of like gleaning. You go through and, and you look and, and see what other people have picked and picked up on. And every once in a while you go, oh, that is a very cool thing. And then, you, you, you know, you'll develop it and maybe even put it in your own words. But wow, what is, how great is it that there are other men of like mind that can minister to you. But you are supposed to be first and foremost the partaker. See, God's given us that. So this idea of all these different doctrinal views, these different beliefs, there is something that is happening and I'm watching it go on and I'm hearing people talk about it and it's a little disturbing to me. We have now made it oversimplified in essential and non-essential doctrines. How many of you guys have heard that talked about? Well, that's, that's you know, we, we want to make sure that we agree upon the things that we must agree upon, but all the other stuff, let's not divide. Well, let me show you what my pastor had taught me. He taught me that there aren't two categories, there are three categories. And this is the way that I had been instructed, and I agree with it. There are the ones that upon which we will not agree, or disagree rather. We have to agree on this. Let's say the virgin birth, the deity of Jesus Christ, his atonement at the cross, and the necessity for us to believe in that. So any number of those things that are the difference between heaven and hell, those are non-negotiables. That's my first category, as I was taught. If we don't believe these things in common, we're not even talking to Christians. If somebody wants to tell me that Jesus is just part of the creation and not the creator, different Jesus altogether. If they want to tell me that he didn't resurrect bodily but only spiritually, different Jesus. We're not even talking about the same thing. We are not talking about the, the same God of the Bible. So non-negotiable. Now, there are the other things that we believe, very much like what Paul said to Timothy. Hey, you've seen my doctrine. Now, you hold to that stuff. You don't just say, it's no big deal. Let's put it aside. And I know that people will disagree with me on this one. But I believe if we believe something that it is worthy of being defended. And some people will say, well, then that means that you're just going to be picking fight with, fights with people that believe just as you do. No, I'm not. Have you ever noticed this? And this is, I, I say this to pastors all the time when I get a chance to talk with them. There are people that are, are pastors in the, uh, even around Calvary Chapel, not, not even the guys outside, with whom I agree on just everything that I know of, and I don't have enough time to hang out with them. But somehow I'm being expected to go hang out with a bunch of people with, I, with whom I disagree on some very major things. And so if I was to think about how crazy that is, well, you should be doing outreach with this person, with that person, everything else. Can you imagine if... If I was sitting next to somebody who had a different view of that kind of stuff and we did an outreach and a whole bunch of people came forward and they all decided to give their life to Jesus, one of us would be saying, they had no choice in the matter, God brought them. And I'd have to look up, no, no, no. God gave them a free will and he gave them an invitation and they responded. We wouldn't even agree how they got there in the first place, so how are we going to instruct them on the rest of what we believe? Now, I don't dislike them. I'm going to spend eternity with these guys. What I do know is that they can do their thing in that part of town and I'll do mine over here. And I won't have enough time for the people with whom I do agree. I wish I did. Does it, if anybody ever stumbles upon a way to make more time in the day, please let me know because I'm, I'm a buyer if you can figure that one out. So this whole thing about we've got to have unity, we've got to have unity. Well, I don't want to go picking fights and I'm not going to tell them that they're unsafe. That's not my point. The unity I've always had is with those with, with whom I agree because we do, do outreach and we do things like this conference. 
So if, if some of those things, can you imagine how absurd it would be if all of the doctrinal things I just mentioned very briefly, I totally was in opposition to everything that X taught? Can you imagine how weird and how awkward that would be? He'd spend the next week un, undoing everything I just did and say, what was I thinking bringing that knucklehead here? Maybe because of something that I said at one time, which just proves that maybe a broken clock is right twice a day. But see, if I didn't agree with him on these things, then he's really messing with you guys up because now confusion's brought into the midst, and that's not a good thing. So I know that people disagree on that. Now, what about those things that we can disagree on and it's no big deal? Do I have an example of one of those? Well, I do. Thank you for asking. <laughs> and this is one of my favorites. And people do debate this one, and it's always entertaining. Genesis chapter 6, the Nephilim. How many of you guys know about the whole debate on the Nephilim? Okay, so this side of the room believes that they are freakishly large human beings, and that's it. You over here believe that they're demons spawn. They're half demon, half human. And the two sides like to debate that whole thing. And basically, if I'm the guy with the striped shirt and referee the whole thing, I'd say, neither one of you can prove your side. It's entertaining and everything, but let's move on. Now, we can disagree on those kind of things amongst ourselves. That's cool. But I don't know how it is that I reconcile some things like if Jesus isn't returning at any moment, like what Jack was sharing with us, just looking at it from the side of prayer. But if we're going to look at it from the side of end times and eschatology and all the rest of that, do you know how much that changes the way that you even do your evangelism or your work in the world? Do you know that there is a school of thought that what we need to do is to prepare the world for Jesus' return. That's taken from Matthew 24, 14, where it says that the gospel needs to be preached into all the earth and then the end comes. Okay, well, that's great. We want to we want to preach the gospel, but a lot of times they think that preaching the gospel is their programs of things. And so everybody has a methodology and a program of how to do church. Interestingly enough, we have the first pattern in the book of Acts. Let's take a look there. Book of Acts chapter 2. Now, it's interesting as you think about this, sometimes you can, you can look around the landscape and you can see that something is kind of maybe a little bit off, but you don't know exactly what it is. This, I believe, is a great way of looking at it. Acts chapter 2 is coming on the heels of Pentecost. And Peter preaches this incredible message. Interestingly enough, when it comes to our doctrine, what should our doctrine be? We hear a lot of times you can't talk about sin. You shouldn't be talking about repentance. Don't talk about the cross. Don't talk about the blood because that just makes people uncomfortable. Talk to them about love and then you can get into that stuff later. But they never really actually get around to it. Look at what Peter did. And it's based upon a very interesting passage found in Luke chapter 24. Starts at verse 44. Jesus says, Make sure that when you go, I'm sending you, make sure that when you go and you're in Jerusalem there, there are a few things that you must always make as a part of your ministry and your, your teaching. Remind them that the prophets, that the Psalms, that all of the writings of the Old Testament were pointing to me, that the Son of God, the Messiah, would suffer, would die, and would, ra would rise again. And that there is forgiveness of sin through repentance. And you guys are eyewitnesses. You've seen me. Peter does exactly that in chapter 2 
in the verses uh, right before this, basically at verse 29 through right up to where we're coming. He basically gives them a history lesson. This is exactly what the prophets would, say, would have done. They said this was going to happen, that the Messiah would be suffering. He'd die and he would rise again. And then you notice at verse 37 is when they ask him, so, okay, great, you've convinced us. What do we have to do? Well, look at what he ends up saying in verse 38. Peter said to them, repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and that you would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He did all of the things just like Jesus said. And you will find in all of the addresses in the book of Acts, they always hit those same notes. Jesus, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. And there is forgiveness of sin through repentance by his blood. Simple, right? We've complicated the gospel. Have you noticed? We need flow charts of how to handle the gospel. Right? You, you haven't seen the flowcharts? There's a whole methodology to preaching the gospel. These guys didn't get the memo. Verse 41 tells us this. Now, those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day 3,000 souls were added to them. That's your flowchart. They did what? Those who gladly received his word. He preached the gospel in its essence and then they were moved upon. But then notice what they did right after that. So they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The fellowship, that, that doctrine there is uh, didache, which is the, the act of teaching. And so they continued in uh, steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers. And then you read the rest of it. Isn't that interesting that we've jumped over the idea of doctrine so that we can get to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers? Most churches are more concerned with what can we do on the outward of things, but we're not worried so much about what is it that binds us and brings us in common. Because if we don't know what it is that we believe, why do we pray? What do we pray for? We don't know what God's will is because we haven't taken the time for the word. If we're going to fellowship, what do we fellowship based upon? Our common beliefs, but if we don't know what our common beliefs are, then how do those get discussed? You get the picture? I, now, I keep looking at you. Do you feel like I'm yelling at you or something? Because I'm looking at your faces and I, I'm thinking I'm being mean or something, but it's not my intention. What are we supposed to do? Turn with me to Second Peter. And I'm still at less than the number of scriptures that I gave you in the first session, so I still am safe. Unless Jack is keeping count. What I think we are seeing are a lot of fables being taught in churches. I say all this just as warning. Be careful, because this is what we were warned would be the case. Look at what Peter says, and I love this. We did not, in verse uh, 16 of chapter 1, 2 Peter 1, 16, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we received from God the Father honor, or he rather received uh, from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came from his excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Him saying that means I was there when this took place. This isn't a fairy tale. I didn't hear about it from someone else. I was there when this took place, which gives him the right to say whatever he wants to say based upon what the Lord showed him. Okay, based upon a, a, a provable truth in the scripture. He can't just say whatever he wants. If it's in line with what he was taught, he has the freedom because he's not saying, I heard it from someone else or I read it in a book. No, I was there, he says. I saw those things, which means that 
not only that, we didn't follow cunningly to fly his fables. If God spoke from heaven as Jesus was there and taken, boy, does that not give a lot of credence to everything that Jesus taught. So there is Peter being able to say, so what I heard, I'm going to pass that along. That's the apostles' doctrine that we're talking about in Acts chapter 2. And anyone else who heard what he had to say, who was taught by him, has the authority to speak in his name. That's why we have what we have in the scripture in front of us. Last couple of verses, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll conclude this morning. Afternoon. Morning somewhere in the world, so I'm not totally inaccurate. First uh, Peter chapter 3. If you will, kind of marching orders for the church. What is it that we should do? Well, he says here in verse 15 of 1 Peter 3, this sanctifying the Lord God in your hearts, that idea of salvation and our walk with the Lord is always a matter of the heart. It is not of the head. Though we use the intellect from time to time, if we try to grasp God completely with the intellect, let's just make sure that we understand this. We're not equipped for the task. He's way beyond human intellect. But he does give us the ability to reason with minds and all the rest of it. But this is also, he's saying, look, there's a setting apart. God has a place firmly seated in your heart. That's why you're able to do the rest of this. That you are ready to give a defense to everyone who asks the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness, with fear. Gentleness, respect, a few other different translations say it a different way. But this is incumbent upon the believer. Remember, Peter's writing this as an exhortation to the people that are listening. So it would work perfectly in a church. Are you ready to defend what it is that, that is the hope of, of your existence? Hey, I'm seeing Jesus someday. And as Jack had pointed out, hopefully before the dentist. I'm the same. I, when he was saying that, I mean, I'm, I'm in my mind, I'm going, amen, brother. When I'm praying about things, when they're really, really, you know, I don't want to do that kind of stuff. I don't want to go to the doctor, but I t I'm told I have to do it all the time. But before I go, it's like, well, you know, if you want my input on this, God, now's the time. So, and, but like you said, I want to be able to, you know, preach the gospel to the doctor. So that's why all of your preaching to the, to the dentist is going to be front loaded before he brings out the drill, right? So maybe you can get both things. We can get him saved before he starts drilling on my face. Win-win, right? Okay. Last couple of things. Um, you can just write this one down because I'm really, really short on time. Matthew 10, 20, or Matthew chapter 10, verse 16 is where Jesus tells us that we are to go out because he sends us, he says to the disciples. But when he sends us, he tells us that we're to be harmless as doves, but he also tells us that we need to be wise, even as serpents. So he gives us this great visual picture because what's more harmless than a dove? But what's more cunning than a snake? So he's trying to help us to understand that, look, when you go out and you're going to encounter people, we don't want you to go out there guns ablazing and wiping people out and say, repent or I'll shoot you. But at the same time, he doesn't want us, he, he wants us to go out with gentleness, but also realize that when we go out, the devil knows that we're going out as well. He's going to give opposition. He's looking to keep us from doing the task that God has given to us. Here's the last thing that I'll say about it. I'll just give you the scripture references. What I had mentioned earlier was from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, where he talks about the church as being that pillar, that ground of the truth. Now, remember how I had mentioned that earlier in that chapter, he had said, Timothy, time to clean the slate there at Ephesus. Everything that I told those guys in Acts 20 seems to have unwound by now. Start over again. 
Deacons and elders, here's their qualifications. Make sure that they are men of impeccable character. Why? Because by chapter 4, right after that, he ends up saying to them that people are going to believe in doctrines of demons. So what is the, what is the counterbalance in the church for the infiltration of what the enemy sends our way other than that we are completely equipped according to doctrine and according to the word of God? Remember in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he talks about the end times there and he says people are going to be turned away to fables. But that's where they will, because they're going to be turned away to that, they're going to turn their ears away from what? Sound, where we get the word hygiene, doctrine. They're going to be turned away from the soundness of doctrine. They're going to be turned away to fables. So what are they going to do? They're going to find somebody that's going to tell them the things that they want to hear, even though it's inaccurate, but it's entertaining. So we have to know that Paul gives that caution all the way back a couple thousand years ago. The question is, when we survey the world around us and the church in particular, are such times upon us now? And if they are, God's not looking for us to go out and get notches on our gun belt by winning arguments with people. Actually, people that are really set in their views, really argument is really all that you ever get. Nobody ever seems to move. We're looking to minister to those people who may not have decided on such things. We want to instruct them in the, in the yeses and the noes, the nuts and bolts, the, the, the essence of what it is that we believe. We want to win people to that because after salvation, God said to us, Jesus, when he was sending them out, he said, go out into all the, all the world and make what? Disciples, not converts. Look at how many people got saved. Great. What happens to them a year from now? Have you instructed them in righteousness? Have you exhorted them? Have you taught them doctrine? Have you done all that? Because that's where the roots come from. That's why we bring them into church. And again, all the way back to the early days with Chuck. I was uh, last weekend, weekend before last. No, it was last weekend. Uh, we were up in, in the mountains with our men's retreat. And uh, I had mentioned this. And though I was not of that vintage, uh, Jack, my pastor, was. He was one of those hippies that kind of wore burlap back in the day. And he was a house elder out under Paul Smith in the high deserts. So my, my pastor came from the, the Jesus hippie days, as he would say, we were, not, we were not flower children, we were blooming idiots. That was, Jack, that was Jack's take on the whole thing. And so if you think about those days, if you've never seen the pictures, go back and look at the pictures of the people that were hanging around uh, Costa Mesa. And I said this to everybody else because I am familiar with the history, though I wasn't old enough really to be a part of it. I was just kind of a kid at that time. Um, but the cool thing is that Jack was very careful to pass that along to me. But what I said to the guys, can you imagine if we all believed in aliens, just work with me on this. If we believed in aliens and they came down and they landed at Costa Mesa and took a look around, they would say, take us to your leader. <laughs> that guy over there, the guy with the bald head and the turtleneck and that guy? No, we want to see your leader. Well, that is the leader. He used the people that looked a lot like them and they evangelized and everybody kind of looked that way, except if you looked like Chuck because you were the older people. But those people would get saved, but those were the ones that came to salvation. Then you push him over to the man who instructs him. And that was Chuck's, Chuck's part in all of that. There was the idea of taking them from convert to disciple. Fruit remains when disciples are made and they are educated in the things of God. 
They believe first and foremost in the accuracy, the authority, the perfection of the word of God, which makes it trustworthy for doctrinal things. And then it is up to us to learn those things instructed by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it settles these things. Again, we don't look to win arguments. You haven't asked us to win arguments. You've asked us to handily, or, uh, accurately handle your word. You have asked us to make sure that we know what it is that we believe, that we can defend it when people ask. We pray, Father, that we would be busy about the things that we know and that we believe, that we would pass those along to people who desire to know. We ask, Lord, that you would help us as disciples of yours, that we would too look to make disciples, that we would be involved in the work that you're doing here on the earth. As we await your return, that glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, how we look forward to that day. Cause us to be courageous. Help us to use the opportunities that you put before us in this, this dark day. But as Jack had said, we are to be lights in the midst of all of that. We have such a blessed hope. We thank you. We give you all the praise and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.